Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietley. David, the way we originally found out about you was because of something that our friend Frank Warren shared with us, um, something that you'd written on, uh, on his site. We won't talk about that until a little later on. Uh, we want to ease into the episode here. So, so many of us got interested in the topic of UFOs because of experiences we had when we were young. Is, is that your story as well, David? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, tell, yeah. tell us about it, please. Well, the first, uh, I am a contactee, a bedgie, whatever you want to call it. I don't really think either of those words fits the description correctly. But uh, the first experience I remember happening was when I was about four years old, and I'm 48 now. You know, like most people that are experiencers, always had an interest in space and, and, and uh, you know, space-related sci-fi things and that sort of stuff. And in my 30s, I started having a lot of memories pop up that I just really couldn't get rid of and I couldn't explain. And then I guess it kind of snowballed from there. That's where my interest in the topic came about. Now, you said, mentioned memories here. Is this conscious memories, nightmares? Yeah. What sort of memories? Nightmares. No, no, no. Uh, you know, I... I've had the, the occasional dream about the UFO or something like that, but, you know, I don't want to read anything into those, so I just put it down as a weird UFO dream. Uh, the memories I was having were very conscious memories, uh, you know, almost like they'd happened yesterday, that kind of thing. So these were coming up in a waking state when you said when you were in your, in your 30s, but how do you know they trace back to when you were four? How do you make that connection? Well, uh, just... Based on what I can remember, uh, the time in my life, um, I do have a sibling, and he's six years younger than I, and at that time he hadn't been born yet, so, and a little bit of input from my parents, at least some, you know, my father, because he's an experiencer as well, so is my younger brother. What was the nature of that experience when you were four, David? What, what exactly happened that you can remember? <laughs> when I tell people about it, I, I, I kind of nicknamed it the Mexican standoff. Um, because really all I remember is waking up and I saw this head at the end of my bed. I later came to realize that most likely it was the head of a gray because it had that shape to it. And me and this head just sat there and stared at each other until I finally got so tired I fell asleep. So you didn't remember like calling out, you didn't like try to wake anybody else up, you were just looking at this thing. Was I it a... I was okay. Years old yeah. and I was scared to death. Yeah. So, uh, in the, the 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 fear basically kept you glued to the spot. Yeah. Just as an aside, I I think I understand that sensation where you basically just you really can't do anything. So, you fell asleep and when you when you woke up, was there any uh, at that time sense of unease? And again, I realize you were four years old. It's probably hard to remember that. But what about it? What What did you remember? Did you remember? Well, tell us, actually, if you would, tell us about how you came to remember this episode. You know, this is something that's always, always stumped me about this phenomenon. I hear this from people all the time. It's like, I'm not really sure how I remember this, but the memories there are just clear as day. Um, you know, I, uh, shoot, I'm going to stumble around here trying to answer this accurately. Uh that memory was always with me, and I'm sure, you know, the next day or something, I felt uneasy, and I and I asked my parents about it, but 
you know, typical of most parents, they tell you, oh, you just had a bad dream or something like that. Mm -hmm. There are other memories, you know, later on when I was six years old, eight years old, that sort of thing, that are much clearer. You know what, let's um, maybe focus on those. Can you be as specific and detailed as you can about those memories at the time you were six? Okay. Uh, there are a couple that I don't mind sharing with you guys because I talked about them with other people before. Um, and these two are really, uh, they still give me the creeps thinking about it because in some way I've been able to corroborate them a little bit and verify them, at least for myself. Uh, you know, other people may not consider it proof that it happened, but to me it is. Um, the first memory was when uh, I was, I think, seven years old, not six years old, seven years old. And this was during Christmas, and it might have even been on Christmas Eve. Uh, it was so close to Christmas that we had the Christmas tree up. And I remember this year very carefully because we had one of those weird aluminum Christmas trees that got popular back in the 60s. And in my bedroom, I could look out my bedroom door and look into the living room. And the Christmas tree was in front of this big picture window we had. So I could see the outline of the tree and some of the furniture uh, from the, the light coming in from the street light outside. And I woke up and I, and I realized there was somebody moving around the tree. It was a very short somebody. And, I, you know, they seemed to be looking at the presents under the tree. And I really don't remember much else about that, that night. Um, when I was 41, I sat down with my dad and I asked him, hey, you remember that year we had this that funky Christmas tree, the silver tree? And he said, yeah. I said, did I ever have an extra present or a present missing that year that you could think of? And he got a funny look on his face, and he thought about it for a minute. And he goes, you know what? You did have a present missing that year, and your mom and I couldn't find it. We didn't know what happened to it. Then he hollered downstairs to my mom and asked her about it. She said, yeah, he did have one missing. Of course, it was so long ago. I When I asked him, did they remember what the present was? They said no. But then I told him why I was asking. And he just kind of went, oh. So, you know, I, I, I don't know if I'm putting two and two together and coming up to five there or not, but I got a clear memory of, of E.T. looking around a Christmas tree. And then my dad verified for me, you know, almost 40 years later that I had a present missing that year. So, uh, for lack of a better term, I guess E.T. took one of my Christmas presents. Well, now, when you say you saw this, David... Try to tell us exactly what it is you saw. Now, now you said something, though, that's kind of interesting. You said you woke up and saw this. Yeah. So, so yeah. you were asleep. As was far as it, I know, I was asleep. Right. So, okay. Was it motion in the room that woke you up? No. You know, I, and I'm, it's kind of hard to explain, but whenever they're around, and I mean E.T. or whoever these beings are, you get this sense you know they're there. I don't know what this is they give off, but you can sense their presence. And that's the only way I know how to explain it. Something woke me up because I knew somebody else was in the house. What is that sensation like? If, if you had to describe it, take a shot at it, try. What's that? <laughs> okay. You ever get that creepy feeling that somebody's standing right behind you and makes you turn around and look, whether mm -hmm. there is or not? You know, it, it's like that. Okay. It, it's kind of a sensation of being watched. It's not a sound, a sound sensation. You not like hear like a low hum or anything. Not like a a difference in change of atmosphere in the room. You're saying it's it's more of that that hair standing up on the back of your neck thing being looked at. Well, I guess it is. But you know, I have I have experienced some of those the other aspects of that where you know it may be a physiological thing. I don't know. Um, 
mm-hmm. where it just feels like you said you mentioned room, you know, pressure in a room or something. Right. I'm not sure that really is correct, but there is a more than just a creeped out sensation. At times, there has been a, you know, a physiological sensation, and I have heard a humming or buzzing sound before they've showed up, but not every time. Was it in one specific ear that you heard that sound? No, it was in my head. Okay. So you were hearing this sound in your head, or is it an external sound? Again, that's hard to explain. It's both. I know that may not make sense, but it feels like it's coming from outside your head, but it's not really an auditory sound. It's hard to describe. So then what exactly did you see in the living room? I saw a small figure, um, the silhouette of a small figure. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to be bending over, and then and it had something in its hands, you know, which I, I'm guessing were the Christmas packages because they're kind of what they look like. Years later, when I thought about this memory before I had asked my dad about it, it, it really dawned on me who, who I was seeing. And it wasn't the great type ETs. Um, there's two types that I've seen the majority of the times that I've had encounters. And one of them are these little blue-skinned, short, squat, midget-looking guys and most likely it was one of them because his silhouette fit that now that sounds an awful lot like one of the characters that uh, Willie Strieber typically describes right it is. it's the same all right so talk to him about this before we throw this out, and this is a question that will be obvious now you started remembering these things in your 30s which means we're into the 1990s already you were born in 1961 according to your site mm-hmm. all right now, we know that in the 1960s, we didn't hear very much about UFO abductions. Barney and Betty Hill was about it, not so much anything else. But before you started recalling what you feel happened to you, had you read literature about UFOs, Whitley Strieber's book, Bud Hopkins, something like that? No, no, no. Actually, I didn't really start looking at other people's cases till maybe my mid to late 30s. And most of these memories started popping up, say, between when I was 28 to 32 in this range. Okay, so let's let's move on to other experiences then, David. So that, that one happened when you were seven on Christmas. Let's move to the next one. The next one I remember, and this is probably one of the clearest experiences I can remember, um, was when I was eight years old. Um, my, my family and I, we lived here in Arizona until I was 11. And we used to go camping every year, kind of as our summer trip thing. Um, to the White Mountains, which is over on the eastern side of the state. And but this year, you know, I'm assuming because my brother was a newborn um, that my parents decided not to go. But my grandparents said, well, we'll go camping with them. And one of my cousins had come in from Kansas to stay for a few weeks with my grandparents. So we went camping. And uh, my grandparents had a, a Pacero motorhome, so we weren't really roughing it, but we kind of went all over the state, and we ended up at this camping spot where my parents and I usually went to. And I remember, again, waking up. I hate saying it that way because people think it's always food paralysis and stuff. But in this instance, again, being honest, I woke up, and there was light just streaming in, flooding in from every window. Um, it was incredibly bright. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, why isn't anybody else awake? There's so much light, it's almost like daylight coming in the, the windows. And I tried to wake up my cousin, and he wouldn't wake up. And I moved to the back of the motorhome where my grandparents were, tried to wake them up, and they wouldn't wake up. So I'm getting a little frantic, not you know, wondering why ain't nobody waking up. 
then the door opens and a bunch of light streams in through there and two of these little blue guys walked in hmm. so about this time i'm just scared to death who are these guys they look weird and creepy and they're freaking me out but i got a strange sense that i knew them um and as, as they approached me the closest one to me stuck out his hand and i put my hand in his and i got this instantaneous calming sensation and sort of a it, it'll be okay in my head okay fast question here put out its hand was it a human kind of hand did it have five fingers a thumb some of the details of that sort of thing you know a lot of people will remember real specific things and that i'm not so clear on like their hands and feet i think he had three hands and a thumb but i'll be honest here i mean three fingers and a thumb excuse me three fingers and a thumb okay other than having one less finger than we do their hands look like a normal hand uh but they are wearing gloves i think were they wearing normal shoes or did they have bare feet or what here again i I don't have real solid clear memories of the hands and feet i'm kind of guessing here but it it seems right to me when i when i describe it i think they had i guess what ways you think of compared to uh uh, like uh rain galoshes dark boots of the Mm. the sort so this thing took your hand you had this sense you should calm down then what happened david well okay the next thing i remember and here's i don't understand i've never been able to understand why there's gaps in this but the next thing i remember i'm standing in a on top of this big log that's laying in the middle of a huge meadow and there's large pine trees all the way around us and i'm standing on this log i don't necessarily see any of them close by but i know they are and i get a sensation that there's hands reaching in from behind me and somebody put i guess what you described as a large belt around my waist this belt had a small box on it that had lights on it then I, I get the sensation that the other ones, the other type of ETs that I've seen, are there as well. I can always tell there's a difference in them because, contrary to what some people might think, these little blue guys, they have a lot of emotion, and you can sense that from them. But the other type of ET that I've seen, they're very down to business. I'm not sure how else to put that. They, they're, you know, no emotions, very straight-faced kind of thing. And I knew they were around. And then I got a voice in my head, and I think it was from one of these others, that said, fly. And I'm thinking to myself, fly. And the voice says again, fly. And I kind of got smug, I guess, because I'm like, people can't fly. We don't have any wings. And the voice got a little perturbed at me and said, okay, think of flying. So I stick my hands underneath my armpits and start flapping my arms like the funky chicken. (laughs) To my amazement, I came off this log. I started raising up in the air. I got maybe 10 to 12, 15 feet off the ground. And I'm thinking to myself, while I'm flapping my arms madly, I'm flying. And I I thought to myself right after that, wait, people can't fly. And I got terribly frightened. And as soon as I got frightened, I started falling. It was all about the attitude, David, right? Hi. 
this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free Whois Guard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. have David Andrew. He's an experiencer. And we're talking about experiences with apparent UFO beings, aliens, ET, whatever, dating back to his childhood. Now, you mentioned getting very brief communications from them mentally. And we understand you were very young at the time. But do you recall trying to engage them in any conversation at all? Was there any verbal communication at all? Or was it all in your mind? I, honestly, I've never experienced what I gather to be or, you know, oral communication from them. It's always been this other form, and I guess you'd call it telepathic, but I'm not sure that word really fits. When you say that uh, these little blue creatures seem to be emotional, David, can you, can you be more specific about that? What kind of emotion did you feel, and in what context did you feel this um, emotion from this thing? I've gotten a sense of playfulness from them. I've seen one of them smile, uh, not whether that's just a fake smile, you know, just to make me feel better, I don't know. But I honestly, you know, it, they feel like old friends. And, I, you know, I've never gotten a sense of, of any ill will from them. So here's a question for you about that, David. Um, there's a term that comes up on the show more often than not. That term is deception. Mm -hmm. In your mind, how do you differentiate between the sense that, let's say, this creature was playful versus the idea that it wanted you to feel that way? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, that's actually a good question. Honestly, I'm, I'm not sure I could. You know, I, I thought about that, too. I don't know whether they do that just to make you feel at ease. Um, well, there, I asked that because, yeah, well, see, because you're, you're at that point, you're an eight-year-old boy. And um, and I'm I'm wondering about this because in, in in the discussions that we've had on the show and in the accounts that I've read about, um, it's usually only children that report a sense that these things are in any way playful or 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 light. 
uh, when you read adults' accounts about this, you almost never hear that terminology used. And, and that's what makes me wonder about this idea that uh, maybe they, they engage children in that way in order to basically make it into a game for the kids instead of the kids feeling threatened. It also sort of it, 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 it suggests not the kind of level of psychic control that we might think whatever these things are can exert on us. It, it sounds like their ability to control us is not quite complete. Um, so what, what you're, you see what I'm saying, right? Mm-hmm. You know, honestly, I, I think they engage us as children, uh, you know, most lifelong experiences. One, because, you know, children are brutally honest, and they, they take everything at face value. Um, and I think the reason why you're, you're asking me about the, the accounts of adults, mm-hmm. you know, children don't know fear yet of a lot of things. You know, you don't know fire is going to burn your hand until you get burnt. And I have a feeling that they're, maybe in that sense, maybe I'm being wishful thinking here, but I have a feeling they're actually being more honest with you at that time because they know they can. But as an adult, you know, you see these guys and you're like, holy crap, what's this? And you get scared to death and you want to flail and run away and that sort of thing. And, you know, maybe that's why people experience the, uh, the immobilizing effect more as adults, because as a child, I can only remember that happening to me once. Well, I, I, let, let's move in a chronological order. I think that would be useful um, based on what David wants to tell us. Um, so, so, David, if you would, we haven't finished this, this encounter that you had when you were eight. How did this, how did this proceed? Well, uh, like I said, I, I had started to fall as soon as I got afraid. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think fear is a big is a big testing point with them as far as they try to see. I think the first account that I told you about, the Mexican standoff thing, right? I kind of get a feeling that that was about, okay, let's just show up and see what happens. They didn't do anything as far as I know. It was just, let's see how he reacts to test his fear. Sometimes I think they do test people in that manner. Mm-hmm. Now, this experience, as soon as I got afraid, I started to fall, but I'm assuming somebody else took over whatever this mechanism was that they had put around my waist because right before I got to the log, I I slowed down and and gradually touched down on this log. And it it struck me that, you know, oh crap, I learned this experience. I probably could have really had some more fun here with this. And this is the first and only time that I remember feeling emotion from the other ETs, not the blue guys. And it was a sensation of like uh, a father, uh, big brother, uh, best friend, all rolled into one. And this voice said in, said in my head, don't worry about it, you'll get it someday. Hmm. And that's all I remember about that experience. I woke up the next morning and I'm back in the RV. Nobody else had any memory of anything happening that night? No. Okay. Um, no kind of physical traces on you of anything. No physical markings on you from this. Well, I, you know, I don't. I honestly don't remember. Not that I'm aware of, but I right. honestly don't remember. Okay, so that was when you were eight. Mm-hmm. What else? Can, happened? I, can I think, can I add something else to that? Please, please. Like I said, the, the, the Christmas experience I had, I told you, I sort of had it corroborated a little bit on, on this particular occasion when I was eight. I asked my dad about this many years later, this camping trip. And he said, when I got home, you know, everybody came to the door, we exchanged hugs and stuff. 
and he said, he asked me the first thing was, did you enjoy your camping trip? And he said, I very proudly exclaimed, I went flying. Hmm. So is that corroboration for others? I don't know. But it really gives me goosebumps when I think about it. Yeah, I don't know that anybody else would necessarily see as corroboration. You're right. Now, in, in these three encounters you've described so far, there was no craft of any sort. You know, you talked about seeing light outside of the RV, but did you, you never saw a craft of any sort? No. No. Honestly, I've never had an experience where I remember either seeing or being in a, in a craft. Okay. Ooh, it was always the creatures, not the mechanism of transportation then. Mm -hmm. Although I have had many sightings in my life, just not during a contact experience. Ever near a contact experience? Now, when you say you've had many sightings then, um, well, let, let's let's pull back for a moment because we're kind of jumping around here. Sure. You had this experience when you were eight. You 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 didn't really think about what you had seen until later on, or you didn't talk about what you had seen until later on, because what you're talking about are not repressed memories per se. I, no. Let's try to get let's try to get clear on this, right? They're not. No, they're not. Okay. So, did you try telling anybody? your grandparents, uh, 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 your parents, about these blue creatures? Again, this is so long ago, I don't honestly remember. I'm sure I, I tried to elaborate to my parents when I got home and my dad says I exclaimed I went flying. Mm. But, you know, I imagine, I'm assuming here again, I imagine I got the, the typical response, okay, well, that's nice, or it was a dream or whatever. I never really talked in detail about these things with my my uh, dad or my brother until in my early 30s. Now, all right, just that relates to something that we're curious about, which is, okay, maybe they didn't take you seriously as a child. Kids maybe make up stories, imagine childhood friends and everything. Talking to them as an adult, what kind of reaction did you get? <laughs> well, uh, my dad is always understanding. He shares with me whatever he can remember. And if I have questions about anything, you know, that happened to me, and I'll ask him, well, do you remember this and that? And the other thing that, 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 you know, something, you know, I'm trying to look for something that corroborates what I'm saying with him. Um, my mom, on the other hand, she just kind of, she tolerates it. Mm. As she's gotten older, she's put up with us talking about it a little more, but. Mm. She'd rather not discuss this. Picture this. You're on the phone with a client or colleague trying to explain something visual, a PowerPoint, a keynote presentation, a website. But it's frustrating because they can't see what you're talking about. The solution? Good news. They can if you invite them to an online meeting using GoToMeeting. Then they can see your computer desktop on their computer screen so you can show them what you're talking about. I use GoToMeeting all the time to collaborate with colleagues and with clients. You can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days, but you must visit GoToMeeting slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for free. 30-day trial. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely, enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk. 
We have David Andrew. He's an experiencer. We're exploring a lifetime of strange experiences. All right. Does that indicate anything that your mom is repressing something that maybe she remembers? I don't know. I don't know. I really, honestly, I've never had the nerve to ask her straight up any hard questions about this because I know it kind of puts her on edge a little bit. So I don't push it. She's my mom. I love her. You know, I don't want to upset her. Well, but now that's kind of interesting, though. If it puts, if it had no meaning to her, David, perhaps it wouldn't put her on edge. I mean, when when you say it like that, I mean, it sounds like if if it puts her on edge, it sounds like it is dredging up something that is perhaps lodged in her memory. I mean, I just, and we're not trying to tell you what to do, right? But have you ever considered talking to her about it to make her feel better? I have, but, you know, then again, I guess it's just a personal choice. Maybe I will, because my parents are getting on in years. I'm not sure how much longer they'll be around. So, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe I should ask about it. The reason I bring this up, um, and people who listen to the Paracast know that that I've had my own experiences, and uh, a number of them have, were with my parents. Both of my parents are deceased now. But um, we actually talked about this stuff quite openly amongst ourselves. My brother, my father, my mother, and I. We, we talked about these things fairly openly um, just because of the fact that they were shared experiences. And um, we were curious about them. And you know, my parents always encouraged us to, to be fairly open about this kind of stuff with each other. A little less so outside of the house. They understood that there there was definitely a stigma associated with this, um, with talking about any of this, any of the paranormal topics uh, that are likely to come up. But it just sounds like like you know she gets put on edge with this whenever you bring it up. Um, you know, if it was something she just didn't want to hear about, I don't know that it would put her on edge. If, well, if it, well, you know, let go ahead. me add this. Maybe I'm maybe I'm. I'm explaining this wrong um, as she's gotten older and you know because my wife has a radio show like you guys show um, she, she she's more receptive about talking about the topic and when I was in my 30s though it, you know she just really you know she, if my dad and I started talking about it she'd go in the other room that sort gotcha. of thing gotcha. uh, but she will you know talk with me and I about her her show and recent sightings and that sort of thing um, but we, I never really go too much in depth with it, with her. But you know, I might take a suggestion and ask about it just straight up. Especially if she's getting along in, in, in years. All right, so that was when you were eight years old. Um, what about after that? You know, now this might surprise you, but and if, if I may share a little bit of, of what I've discovered in the research that I've done and the, the dozens of people that I talk to that I think are genuine experiencers, mm-hmm. um, most people, myself included. If you can remember a dozen to two dozen experiences throughout your whole life, you're lucky. You know, you read people with these books that have these huge narratives and every little detail is there and all that stuff. I'm sorry, but in my honest opinion, that doesn't happen, okay? Um, those two experiences, the Christmas one and the one where they, I was camping, that's those are the ones that I remember the most of. I do have bits and pieces of others, but... Nothing as clear as that. Hmm. So these all happened fairly early in your life. Now you're saying you have no memories of anything after eight no, regarding no, this. No, no, I'm not saying that. I, I right. do have a few other memories, but like I said, they're they're like that very first encounter. They're just this little blip on the radar screen, so to speak, and there's not really much to it. I can't really 
determine what it was about, you know. Okay. How about some of the, the other UFO sightings you had? Care to um, share any of those with us? Sure. Um, the majority of the sightings I've had happened after I moved back here in the mid to late 90s. I've you say majority before we go on. Did you ever have a sighting prior to that? Not that I remember. Okay, so when did the first one occur? The first one, and it was really quite odd, um, was probably, I don't know, maybe 96 or 97. And I had I was outside. I went outside to have a smoke. I was staying at my parents' house because I just moved back from, from Florida. And I was facing the house, leaning against my, my truck. And I got that, that creepy sensation like when they show up, you know, I'm being watched, and I got this terrible urge to turn around. And I turn around and look, and I'd say maybe four miles away, four or five miles away, there's a silver, I don't know, the best way to describe it is a Hershey's Kiss. There's there's a silver object sitting in the sky, and I'm looking at it going, holy crap, am I seeing what I'm seeing? And it just disappeared. It didn't zoom off, it just vanished. And then it reappeared and vanished, then it reappeared and it vanished again. It did this blinking off and on three times and then it was gone. Well, what's weird about that is oh, one week later to the, to the day, almost the exact time during the day, same situation. I went outside and had a smoke. I'm leaning against my truck. I get that creepy urge to, that I'm being watched again. I turn around and there's this object again. It looked identical to the one I had seen a week before in the same exact spot in the sky, and it did that blinking off and on three times thing again and vanished. Hmm. Now, the craft specifically, how big did it seem to you? How far? Again. At that distance, and it was, it was, you know, there was no clouds in the sky. It's really hard to compare size. Um, you know, I would say that it was less than 50 feet in diameter, maybe closer to. 20 to 30, somewhere in there. Well, you know, they have this classic thing of taking a coin, holding it at arm's length, and saying, yeah. well, if I hold a quarter at arm's length, that was the size. So how would you gauge the size of what you saw? Oh, okay, let's see. Um, maybe uh, at arm's length, maybe the size of a pencil eraser, something like that. Okay, know? really, really small then, and you had no clouds or anything with which to gauge no. distance. So Anything you assume here is just an assumption in terms of the size of the thing. Yeah. Right. Okay. You you didn't see this thing moving, David? Basically, no. when you say it just blinked out and it was gone. Well, you know, it, now I'm guessing here, but it might have been either rotating or, or wobbling a little. I don't know, because it seemed to be shifting its shade of color from a real shiny chrome white silver to a duller gray uh, like brush steel color, so that that movement. I don't think that was just you know just sun reflection. It, it like I said, I'm guessing here, but it makes sense in my mind that it would have had to have been at least you know wiggling or wobbling or something because of this change in uh, texture and color in it. Well, it was very small from what you're telling me, so it must have been really hard to pick out the tails. Yeah, it was. So, it was close enough to know that I could clearly tell it didn't have any wings, it didn't have any tail, it didn't have any rotor blades. Uh, from where I was at, it wasn't making any sound that I could hear, but it was far enough away that if it had been making noise, I might not have been able to hear it anyways. 
And how long was it in view again before it winked out? I'd say the whole sighting lasted maybe 10, 15 seconds of that each time. Mm -hmm. Okay, now you had further sightings beyond these? Yeah. Um, I'd say maybe maybe a year later. I was out in the backyard, and my, my dad has this big pair of, I guess, surplus military binoculars. So just as a lark, I went outside to watch the... Uh, airliners because sometimes the, the traffic pattern from uh, Sky Harbor will be directed north. Maybe let our listeners get a sense of where we're talking about here. You live, and I'm not going to obviously mention location, you live in a community that's west of Phoenix, Arizona. Sky yeah. Harbor Airport would be southeast be of south, south, Yeah, southeast. Okay, fine. Okay. Um, then I'm watching this one airliner go by. It's a 737, and I'm kind of focusing in on the tail of it to see if I could see any markings or numbers or whatever just kind of messing around with these binoculars. And I noticed something glinting in the sky behind it. So the, the airliner passes, and I focus in on this thing, and to my amazement, I saw two gold disks sitting in the sky. And it was, you know, I mean, with these binoculars, they were up close and personal. It was very clear to tell what they were. They were classic disk-shaped. They were a gold color that was like brushed metal. And as I watched them, a third one, zipped in from out of nowhere. It moved so fast it just looked like and it was there. And then a fourth one. And they were sitting in a diamond formation. And it was kind of weird because they were kind of bobbing up and down on their edges. They weren't rotating, but they were kind of making this bobbing motion. Clarify for me for a moment here. This is after the regular commercial aircraft passed? Okay, how long was the duration between the time that you saw that aircraft and these things came along? Well, like I said, as I was watching the, the aircraft, um, I noticed, you know, fairly soon on that there was this something else shining in the sky behind it. So, so I, maybe it was there all along. Yeah, yeah, it could have been there all along, and I just didn't notice it at first. You'd wonder, though, that people in the aircraft ought to have seen something. <laughs> They may have. I don't know. Um, I think the objects were far enough away from it that, then again, they may not have. Um, the objects were maybe another mile or mile or so past the aircraft. The aircraft was pretty close to me. I'd say it was, oh, gosh, um, I'm trying to think about how far I-17 is from here. The aircraft was maybe five miles away from me or less. Okay, but you're uh, in an area here where there is constant radar. Mm -hmm. Constant monitoring of traffic in the air. Mm -hmm. Okay, just want to clarify. Go ahead. No, no, that's a good point. You know, the objects were also a little higher up than the aircraft was. And, you know, the windows on an aircraft are pretty small. People, if somebody had their face pressed right against the window looking up, they most likely wouldn't have seen it. So how long did you keep these things in sight for, David? Um, I stood there and watched them for about five minutes. And my arms got tired, so I tried to sit down on the ground and prop my arms up on my knees, and I, I couldn't find them again. I don't know whether that was because I just couldn't find them or they left. So uh, about how long was it before, you, you know, you, you try to sit down and prop yourself up, maybe a minute, minute and a half, and then they were gone? Yeah, yeah that or less. Even less, I, okay. You know, I tried to move pretty quickly so I could get them back inside again, but right. I couldn't find them. Okay. So, after that, is there a next sighting? Well, 
now this one, I'm, I, I can't honestly tell it was an unidentified flying object, okay? I'm not saying it was a spaceship or a craft or whatever, because I'm not sure what this was. This was on a Saturday afternoon, and I was outside again, and this thing, it looked like a, uh, how do I describe this? Uh, you know what the SR-71 looks like? Sure, the Blackbird. Yeah, absolutely. The Blackbird, okay. Yeah. If you take just the, the front end of the Blackbird, cut the engine part off, get rid of that, and, and elongate the tail so it's almost a teardrop shape, I saw an object that looked like that moving faster than I have ever seen anything move going from south to north, and it was really low. I didn't see any wings, any tail, no lights, and it, it was hauling ass. I had no idea what it was. Well, now, when you say it was moving fast, I've seen jet fighters move fast. Uh, and I couldn't tell you it was even a jet fighter, because when something moves that fast, you can't see a distinctive shape. Yeah. So what, well, you're, I mean, so what you're describing, basically, you, you, it's hard for you to describe a shape if it was moving that fast, right? Well, like I said, it looked like a, a sort of a teardrop shape to me, and it was solid black. Now, what what you know, year was this, David? Oh, maybe 1998 or 9. And what uh, time of day was this? This was in the afternoon, about 12, sometimes between 12 and 1 on a Saturday afternoon. Okay, so almost always in Arizona, it's cloudless or nearly cloudless. Yeah, yeah, except for lately. <laughs> All right, so, so tell us a bit more about this. You saw this moving in the sky fast. Make any sound? Not that I know of, but again, like the other sighting, it was far enough away that if it had been making noise, I might not have heard it. You know, because I've noticed helicopters that are really loud, and if they're a mile or two away and they're just the right point, you can't hear them. Hmm. Now, keep in mind, you know, I've been an airplane nut since I was a little kid, Um, and I'm pretty familiar with most types of fighter aircraft, even the ones that were here back, you know, in the 60s. And I know at this time that the aircraft aren't allowed to fly over the city normally. They usually make an approach pattern to lose Air Force Base that's well outside of city limits. Um, this thing seemed to be heading almost directly above I-17, which at, at this part of the city, it runs almost directly north and south. Okay, we're talking uh, about a very well-traveled interstate highway. Yes. yes. Okay. And normally here in Arizona, you know, if you're in the right spot, and it's not cloudy, you could probably see 30, 40, 50 miles easily in each direction, you know, until the, until your view is blocked out by the houses and stuff. And this thing, from the moment I spotted it until it left my sight, was less than 10 seconds. Another quickie. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits.
You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We have David Andrew, UFO experiencer. We're talking about his sightings. David, mm-hmm. did you check things like the New Fork database to see if anybody else had reported seeing something like this? Was there any corroboration of this sighting from a third party of any sort? Not that I'm aware of. Um, you know, honestly, I didn't become aware of New Fork until maybe five or six years ago. Okay. Um, which I, I was like, why doesn't everybody know about this site? Yeah. Okay, but having learned about them, have you actually tried to go back into their database? You could look it up online and see whether anything was reported in the Phoenix area during the times that you saw these things. Actually, no, I haven't. I mean, I know he doesn't speak well of me as a researcher. But <laughs> well, it certainly would behoove you, uh, obviously, yes, would, to do that, right? I mean, just it's always good because... And, and, you know, just to, just to ask this question, because I'm sure some of our listeners are thinking of this right now as they hear this, it sounds, David, like everything you've talked about so far basically is something where you and you alone saw what you saw. Okay. Are there any yeah. sightings where, where you, were, you were with someone else who saw what mm-hmm. you saw? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could you um, tell us about those? Uh, this was many years later. My wife and I, in September of 2005, uh, were double-checking on a sighting that someone else had reported. And we went cruising around the area in the daytime, just kind of get a, a feel of where these people said they had saw it. And then we went back there later, I think the next night, just to see if we could see anything. And, we're, you know, that was a bust. So we started on our way home. And I noticed three large orange lights in my rear view mirror and I asked my wife what are those lights she's like what lights and I pointed them out and then she starts yelling at me turn around pull over pull over pull over and we finally got turned around and we pulled over and she gets out we have a video we had a video camera we got three minutes of footage on this thing and there's three large orange lights moving parallel to the 101 they were heading south and I would guesstimate that they were around where the, the Cardinals football stadium is. And as she was watching, you know, filming them with the camera, I got a, a, a monocular that we had in the car. And I'm looking at it, and there was actually four objects there. There was the three of them in a line, and the one that was closest to us had another one underneath it. That one didn't come out on the video. I'm not really sure why. And we watched them for three minutes, and, and they just blinked out one at a time. I've never seen any lights like this before, um, but actually there was a van load of people that had pulled over just down the road from us, and they saw us filming this, and then after the thing went away, they came driving over to us, and they said, did you see that? Did you see that? So we had other witnesses there, too. Well, obviously, we want to talk about that movie you took. I assume when you say film, it's really just a tape recording or a digital recording. Yeah. Okay, is it posted anywhere? No. Okay. Have you tried to have it analyzed by anyone? Um, my wife contacted, uh, or she's been, I think, hang on just a second. Hon, did you try to contact Bruce Backerby about that video? No, 
Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, no, she was wanting to contact Bruce McAbee, but we haven't done that yet. Um, she did try to talk to uh, Jim Dilatoso, mm -hmm. but at that time, I don't. he just kind of seemed neither here nor there. I think people were giving him crap about something else he'd analyzed, so we kind of let it go. So basically, in the years since this happened, it's just sitting there. You haven't yeah. tried to post it on your website or anything. Well, my wife wasn't really that used to this camera. And so it's not the greatest quality video. I've taken a few stills from it that, you know, I have posted online for a while. You haven't posted online? No, no, I, ha I had them posted online for a while, but I took them down. Oh, all right. From a different website that doesn't exist anymore. Oh, okay. Would you be willing to get us a copy of the video? Uh, hang on. You want to give them a copy of the video? Yeah. Gosh, we can do that. Well, you happen to be, be local, so it's something that possibly I can make a copy of it for you. We can make arrangements over the next few days, and I'll give you. I do have it burned a DVD, so if you want, I can copy that for you. If that format will work, that no, would work perfectly. Great. Sure, that'd be great. So, yeah, can, so I, can I say something? About, okay, please. Oh, no, no, go ahead, David. Uh, I wanted to say something else about this this particular sighting. Now, these uh, this objects or object, whatever it was, I think they were individual objects, just by the way they moved, but. I've never seen any large yellowish-orange lights like this before. Uh, I'm fairly convinced they weren't any kind of conventional aircraft, but I'm not 100% uh, convinced that they were also, uh, you know, an anomalous technology in the sky, uh, mainly because of a lot of the videos that have been coming out of the U.K. lately that are later found out to be those Chinese lanterns. The Chinese lanterns, yeah, that are hoisted yes. up in the air. Yeah. Which, yeah. which, if that's what it was... That in itself worries me because as far as I know, people lighting a flaming object here in the desert and sending it into the sky, I think it's a federal offense because of the fire yeah. hazard. So yeah. was it a prankster or was it something legitimately strange? I don't know. Okay, so basically when you talk about what you photographed, it may have been a conventional thing all along. It, it may have. It may okay. have. I just can say I've never seen anything like that in the sky myself. Well, it's worth certainly looking at the picture now. Well, the bottom line, Gene, before you continue, uh, David, you didn't see these things make any really quick motions, right? No. Well, right. when we first spotted them, they were moving um, east to west, parallel to us, because we were going over one of the new overpasses they, they built over Grand Avenue. And when we got turned around, they were moving in a different direction. They were heading south. Okay. And they were all traveling in kind of an, a, a very slow arc. Um, other than mm. that, I didn't really notice any, any drastic movement in them. You heard nothing, but you were in a noisy vehicle, right? Yeah. Okay. So they could have made a sound, but you might not have heard them. Yeah, yeah. All right. Any other sightings in which there was another witness? Uh, honestly, no, not that, I, not that I'm aware of. So, David, let's pull back then to your writings on your website about the abduction experience. Because I'm curious about this. From, from what you've described, um, outside of the one event with these creatures coming into the RV, I haven't heard anything so far that sounds like what we would typically call an abduction experience. Right? I guess so. Um, well, I, you know, I just I think it's 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 interesting because, well, I, can, I, can I say something here, please? Please, um, please. You know, I'm I'm kind of 
I'm not sure how to answer you here, but I'm just going to be straight up and honest with this. And if you disagree with me or your listeners do, that's fine. Uh, that's your prerogative. Um, in all of the research I've done and my own experiences, the others of my family, uh, others, uh, you know, abductees that I've talked to, and I said this before, these giant detailed narratives that you hear from the, the latest in vogue contactees, it doesn't happen. I'm sorry, that may be just my opinion, but that's what my research and my experiences have found. That doesn't happen. And if I'm correct, then anywhere from 75 to 90% of the information that people hold as truth about abductions is utter nonsense. We wouldn't disagree with you about certain cases. Um, anybody who listens to our show knows that you know we've had Romanek on. It wasn't that hard to disassemble his story. And, in fact, we're the only radio show that announced that we did the research and found the name and the reality of the, the uh, of the relationship between him and the guy who was going to fund his documentary. Um, and it was all about money. So, uh, you know, it's it's pretty clear to us that the Romanek case is a bunch of nonsense. We, we had Jim Sparks on our show not once but twice, and I think that we handily, easily uh, uncovered what was going on with him. And I think subsequent actions that he's taken have confirmed that he's also somebody who has not had legitimate experiences and, and really is in this to make money somehow, which is sort of laughable in a way. Um, yeah. So we wouldn't, I mean, we're not going to disagree with that issue. Um, at the same time, I guess we'd be curious to know what you think about, for example, the work of people like uh, John Mack or Bud Hopkins. Um, uh, you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, I'd really like to share with you, if, if you don't mind. Uh, you know, I read John Mack's books, the two books he's done on abductions, and I read a couple of Bud Hopkins' books. Um, of, of course, this is, you know, more recently in the last four or five years. Mm -hmm. um, and then I started digging on hypnosis. I, I looked and looked and looked and looked into this. And what I found is that there are quite a few, you know, let me say this first. I commend John Mack for what he tried to do and for his research and for speaking out. You know, I know he got ostracized by a lot of people that were in his field of psychology mm -hmm. and psychiatrists and that sort of thing. But what I found about hypnosis is that there are several university studies that have been done, um, you know, with Ph.D. mental health professionals in charge of these studies, and they all pretty much showed the same thing. And that was that hypnosis does not increase the accuracy of the information. What it does do, it increases the amount of information that people give out when they're under hypnosis. What they found is that in actuality, you're probably getting much more false information. And so if there are any abductees or contactees listening to me right now, I'd say please, if you're going to consider hypnosis, do some research and think very hard about it before you do it. Because once you go down that road, you can't turn around. So it's a sense here that you feel that they are made to remember additional details or fill in details that really didn't happen. They're making it up or just trying to please the hypnotist. All of the above, whether, you know, purposeful or inadvertently. Well, then let's go back to the original Barney and Betty Hill case where it seemed to me the psychiatrist who was doing the hypnosis he was not somebody who believed in UFOs or 
close encounters or any of this stuff. He was just trying to elicit information. He wasn't trying to fill in blanks. So we have to maybe separate the hypnotist from the experiencer there. That's the thing I had a question about and a concern about, and certainly those are valid concerns. So assume here then that of all the experiences that you've had as a child, that you remember those few experiences, you would never submit to hypnosis in an effort to try to unearth any memories that might be hidden. No, I wouldn't. Because really, honestly, like I said, most of the studies I've come across indicate that, yeah, I might come up with more of a story, but in all likelihood, the percentages favor the fact that most of that story will probably be false information. It'd just be my subconscious filling in the blanks or, you know, in case the hypnotist made a slip and said a word or a suggestion that he wasn't supposed to or she wasn't supposed to, then that, it would just snowball from there. Now, and before I really we remember we, what I remember, the way it is, you know. <laughs> You're just trying to do the best. Now, you mentioned some family involvement here and family experiences. Is this something you'd want to mention or discuss it for any further? Um, I can a little bit, but, you know, the, the two members of my family that have had experiences, we both have professional careers, and I really don't want to, you know, drag them into my speaking out about it too much. Well, speaking of that, what is your day job? I've been a machinist for 24 years. Okay. But obviously we don't want to cause any embarrassment or problem with family members without specifically mentioning which family members, and maybe we could cover this a little bit in the beginning of our second hour, can you mention any experience at all? Did they share any of those early childhood things that you mentioned? Both of them have a little bit. Um, I know from talking with my father and my brother that both of them have been tested with that flying device, both about the same age as when I was, about seven, eight, nine years old in that range. Uh, so that's one thing that we have in common. But as far as other experiences, it seems to be that the way that the, these beings have interacted with each of us is kind of individualized. Hmm. Now, you were going to write a book at one time about this, but you've basically stopped work on that now, right? Yeah, yeah. Any why? reason or, yeah, why? Why? Well, one, like I said, I, you know, I, I have a handful of memories. So, first of all, it'd be a very short book. Um, and, you know, I, I've read Jim Sparks' book. I haven't read Stan Romanek's book. Not really sure I even want to. Uh, I feel the money I put out on Stan on, uh Jim's book was pretty much a waste. And Jim, if you're listening, I want my money back. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't want to get lumped into that group of people that have a story to sell, uh, a sell being the operative word here. Um, and I thought about self-publishing, if I can if I can get enough information down with my research, you know, the research I've done and my experiences that might actually make a book-length book. I thought the only way to get around that is to self-publish in most of the places i found that do self-publishing they tell you yeah you can you keep the copyrights and all that other stuff the rights to your material but if you read into the fine print a little farther in they always say the digital copy that they make to do the actual printing from they keep the rights to that they could take my material and do whatever they wanted with it Ooh, sure we understand the difficulty and the considerations david andrew we're talking about his experiences and his viewpoints about UFOs. We'll have more on the other side of the Paracast. 
We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. To automatically assume that everything is the work of an extraterrestrial intelligence, I think would be a mistake. To automatically assume that things that you can't understand are supernatural occurrences, I think that's a mistake. I think that because physics as a science is so imperfect that we may discover eventually that some of the more baffling things that we experience as phenomenon will later be described in very precise terms using tools which we don't have now which would but which will be developed later to give more rational explanations for stuff that is too scary welcome back to the paracast with gene steinberg and david Vietney. we have david andrew he's a resident of the state of arizona who has reported ufo experiences Experiences not so much abductions, but experiences with other beings. And the reason from what you say, I'm not saying they're abductions, is because they didn't take you anywhere, did they? Except for this experience involving the flying attempt. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I'm not aware of being taken anywhere outside the hospital. Maybe I just don't remember. I don't know. Well, David, I'm going to ask you a tough question now. I mean, with that understanding, what do you use as a metric to qualify your feelings about other people's abduction experiences. I mean, because, you know, in reading your stuff, I mean, you you, you say certain things about, well, certain details didn't come out. But if you you haven't subjected yourself to any kind of hypnosis and, and you don't have clear memories, then how do you corroborate details if you don't remember them? I'm not sure what you're asking. Can you explain a little more? Well, sure. Um, I'll give you an example of what I mean. As someone who, for example, I'll just throw this out. I mean, I, I, I've seen some UFOs. In one case, I saw one fairly up close. I've seen how they move. When I hear people describe how these things move, and I'm not saying that my, my experiences are the some culmination of what these things do. They're not. But when I hear somebody describe, for example, seeing an object that's at full stop going to full speed with no acceleration it just goes from a full stop to full speed and someone describes that and how it looks visually that's something i can directly relate to because i've seen it i've seen it up close um so when someone describes that i have something i have my own personal experience to reference and i can say okay what you're describing i know what you're talking about because i've seen it so in 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 reading for example your thoughts about things like the Romanek case. And what you brought up about the Romanek case in particular, we'll talk about in a few minutes, because one of the issues that you brought up is exactly the issue that, that, that I focused in on recently when he was on this one radio show and this ridiculous voice came on the line and told him to stop talking. And it was obviously, I don't think there's any question that it was Stan with some kind of a recorder or device triggering the audio on his end. It was absolutely faked. 
You can almost, you can even hear him putting some kind of a device up near the phone before you hear the voice. And then, you know, Romanek's like, well, what, what was that? Oh, what, what? I mean, it's just like totally, the guy was busted. Not, not that it's not easy to bust him. It's real easy to bust him. Okay. But again, in, in your discussion, like some of the writing on your website about impressions of the abduction experience, how do you analyze someone else's abduction experience and reference the, the existence of certain elements? Like you talk about certain things, details, that don't get out into the public discourse about this, that you basically yeah. use as a form of control reference. Okay. And, and we totally understand that. But the, I guess the question is, if, and it sounds like you haven't had what would normally be called a specific abduction experience. So what elements do you use as a reference to know when someone else is, in your opinion, coming up with a credible story or not? Okay. Um, that's kind of hard without giving away things. I'm not sure I want to put out in the public there. Uh, well, but see, but that, 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 you're begging the question. Yeah. What things are we talking about potentially if, if they're not things that you've directly experienced? If they're things that you hear from somebody else, how can you corroborate someone else's story? Okay, can, can, can I go here with this then? Please. Uh, Stan's Alien in the Window video. One of the things I said in that article is that myself and many others who have seen beings that he, I guess he's portraying in this video, up close and personal, I've seen a gray less than 10 inches away from my face staring right at me. This was about six or seven years ago. Um, okay, this is something you hadn't mentioned before, so we're going okay. to want to know more about that. Okay, sure. But in this particular experience, you know, it was it was very clear what this being looked like. And it didn't look anything like Stan's video at all. Um, now, if you want to elaborate on that particular experience. Well, of course, because obviously before you said you didn't have any adult experiences to mention other than the sightings, but now we see Gray six or seven years ago. What else yeah, are you that, holding that, back? You know, I, I have another maybe half a dozen to ten experiences, but like I said, they're, that I remember bits and pieces of but they're, they're such small amounts, it's like, you know, what was that, you know? Um, in this particular instance, uh, it was storming very hard outside that night, and I wanted to watch the lightning. So I opened the shades in my window, and I actually laid backwards on my bed because the head of my bed was facing the wall where this window was so that I could look out the window. And, and again, I had fallen asleep, and I, and I woke up with that creepy feeling again. Somebody's in the room. Somebody's watching me. I'm laying on my side, and I open my eyes, and to my shock, there's this face right there at the edge of my bed, less than 10 inches away from me, just looking at me. And for some weird reason, at this particular time, I wasn't afraid of it. Uh, you know, you would think most people would be startled to death, but I just kind of laid there and stared at it. And I didn't perceive that there was anyone else in the room besides this one being. But he kept, and I say he, I got a, I don't know if I'm being correct in that. I got the impression it was a male. Just, I don't know how to explain that sense. But he kept looking towards the window as if he was communicating with someone. And he did that a few times and stared at me. The next thing I know, I start to get afraid, which I wasn't before. That stumps me. And I was like, oh, crap, somebody's in the house. Somebody's in my room. I got to get up and turn the light on. And this is going to sound a little strange, but bear with me. 
I tried to move towards the light switch, and I felt like I was running in mud, and I tried to put my hand on the light switch, and my hand went through the light switch. It went through the wall, and I kind of floated to the floor like you, you know, you hold up a balloon and drop it real slowly, and then I got this strange sensation of, of rushing really fast, and then I startled myself awake in bed, and there was nobody in the room. I got up and turned the light on. There was nobody in the room. It sounds like a dream. It sounds like a dream. But now, let me ask you one other fast question. Where was your wife at this time? I wasn't married yet. Okay. Now, like I said, I don't, I don't want to try to read anything into some of the experiences I've had, but that particular experience, I, I have to stop and ask myself, was that an OBE? You know, an out-of-body experience. Well, one of the things I know about that, it seemed to be occurring. But whether that's what it was or it was a dream or not, I don't know. You know, David, we've talked to a lot of people on this show over four years with a lot of different experiences. As you're describing it, and I'm, I'm not trying to call into question your experience, but it does sound like a dream. It, it, it sounds it like, I, I mean, you know, that's so the concern I would have then and uh, in the case of the Romanek video thing, you know, there's been a lot of commentary about, oh, well, this thing had its eyes blink. A real thing, a real creature like that doesn't blink its eyelids. There has been also the issue, and maybe you've seen what Romanek purports to be the actual video, but to my knowledge, uh, that video has never been released in any form. Actually, there's 30 seconds of the actual video on ABC's website. There is? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'll send you the link. Yeah, that would actually be great. I, uh, the, the reality is that, uh, like we said before, there's so many questions, uh, so many reasons to question Romanek. And, uh, you know, that video is not, uh, I'm guessing, based on the still that I've seen, it didn't look very compelling. Given that he, uh, you know, his associate, and again, with his situation, you've got, I think, a clear case of the kind of situation you were describing where you have somebody with very detailed story who's got money people behind him, who's looking to peddle a book, who's looking to get on national television, who associates himself with Jeff Peckman, a guy who is the inventor of the Metatron Harmonizer, and a, a, a joke, just an absolute joke. So with Romanek, we can look at all of the associations he's made. We can look at the, uh, like I said, on the Paracast, we were able to find the name, uh, a one Clay Roberts, who was the guy who was looking to fund Romanek, who now, according to a Romanek's wife, is no longer in the picture. But once you come up with all of these players and profit motives, it becomes pretty easy to, to I think, disassemble uh, something like the Romanek case. But, but again, just because of the fact that we try to drill down into these issues on, on the Paracast, I think that there would certainly, and, and, and I'm sure you, you would understand this, there are people who would um, hear your description of having an issue with the Romanek video based on something you've seen, but some, something you've seen, I think it's, it's clear that people would be well within reason to, to, to question how real that episode was of yours. And, and not only that, I'm going to even throw this out even further to further complicate things, which is that we're back to the deception issue. And 
I think it's difficult to be objective about this topic and, and our perceptions of things when one of the things that seems, I think, clear to me based on discussions we've had in the Paracast is that it, it seems like it's not that hard for other things to psychically manipulate humans. We seem very susceptible to that kind of situation. And so um, in the case of even someone who is having a highly anomalous experience with highly anomalous creatures, it's perhaps problematic to trust one's senses given that people see the, the oddest things that we haven't touched upon the high strangeness component of some of these experiences where people see things that make no sense that that often seem to be some sort of screen memory. So let me let me let me throw a different question at you about this thing that you say was ten feet in front of your face. What did it smell like? I don't know. You know, honestly, I don't remember if I perceived a smell. So that could, mm-hmm. you know, back up what you're saying about the dream. It may have been. But keep in mind, the grays. I've seen the grays on two occasions. Okay, they are not the normal ones who come around me most of my life. Okay. You're saying most of your life again, and I'm seeing a disconnect here. And before we pursue that disconnect. Is there a secret UFO agenda? Do strange creatures from the darkest corners of the mind roam the earth? Is there evidence for mind control, time travel, or devious government conspiracies? Find out the inside scoop on the latest conspiracies, paranormal activity, and Freudian phenomena when you subscribe to Tim Beckley's Conspiracy Journal. It's jam-packed with stories, special book and DVD promotions, and the best news, it's absolutely free, sent right to your mailbox, plus a bonus free email newsletter sent out every Friday. Simply send an email with your name and address to MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MrUFO at WebTV.net. Find out what they don't want you to know. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We have David Andrew telling us about his experiences with UFO entities and sightings. You're talking about a lifetime of experiences here, but then we see it stopping off at the age of eight, and then maybe something more recent. It sounds like there's an awful lot going on that we're not hearing you tell us about. Okay. And we're trying to put this in perspective, and we really want to understand what's happened to you. And I'm not trying to force you to say something you don't feel prepared to talk about. But between the age of eight and the 1990s, any other instances involving contact with entities of a foreign or alien nature? Okay, let me, if I can, let me give you a track record, so to speak, of, of what, what I remember and how old. Most of the experiences I have fairly clear memories of were from the age of four to 11. I had a strange missing time incident when I was about 15. I don't have any memories of contact from my teens, my late teens, up through my 20s. Um, I do have a few experiences that I remember from my mid-30s on. Now, whether 
it stopped in that big time frame, I don't know. Okay, you say age of 11. Age 11, now you stopped at 8. Okay, between 8 and 11, what happened to you? Well, I had another experience where this is the one time that I experienced paralysis that I'm aware of. I got the sensation, again, this was at night, that there were two of these, the more serious beings, as I call them. If if I can here, let me describe these. These are the other ones that I've seen most uh, with the blue guys. They're a gray type ET, but they're white. Their skin is an eggshell white. I'd say if I had to compare them in size, they're about six to eight inches taller than the grays. But in any How tall are we talking about here? Normal size, like a normal human uh, being? I'd say the, the grays, the short grays, are anywhere from three to four feet. These white ones are anywhere from four to five feet tall. But in a, every other respect, they look just like the grays. They're just white and they're a little taller. Now, on this experience that, I, that I'm talking about here, there was one of them on each side of me, and they told me to close my eyes, which I did, and they told me to look at the ceiling. And I'm like, well, I can't. My eyes are closed. And they, they say, say look at the me. ceiling in what way? Telepathic yeah, yeah, message? Yeah, presumably, yeah, like, presumably, sure. Gene, yeah. It's like a okay. voice in my head. Every time I've right. encountered either the blue ones or these white guys, it's always this in-my-head communication. Always telepathic, okay. Yes. And I said, I can't see the ceiling. My eyes are closed. They say, look through your eyes. They look, look through your eyelids. I'm like, huh? And they said, try, focus, concentrate. You know, and so I'm staring at the blackness of my eyelids, and suddenly I can start seeing, it's like tunnel vision. I can see the ceiling. And they prompted me to try to look past the ceiling. And I'm concentrating and concentrating, and suddenly I can see the sky outside and I can see the stars. And the voice says, would you like to see one of those? And I'm assuming they meant the stars, and I'm like, yeah. And they said, concentrate harder. The next thing I know, I feel this strange rushing sensation, and I'm out in space. And they tell me to concentrate harder, and I'm focusing and focusing on, on further and further away objects until it got to a point where I was seeing a... a I don't know how to describe this. Like, you ever have an old, old style flash camera go off in your face and all you can see is the little blue dots? It was like that. I saw this whitish blue whatever in front of me and my eyes started to hurt. And then I heard their voice say, that's enough for now. You did good. And that's, that's all I remember about that experience. What it meant, what it is, what it was. I don't know. Around age of 11. No, this was about nine. This was when I was oh. about nine years old. All right. Anything in more detail, beginning to end, because here it's still the same thing. How much of this is just dream? How much of it is a reality beyond the dreams? Have you ever been given any information or sensation that says to you, this wasn't something I dreamed, it confirms a reality? I'm not seeing the reality so far. Like I said, other than uh, other than a few corroborative points from family members, um, as far as you know, this this flying device. Many many years later, talking to my brother and my dad about it, and we had never discussed it before. They both admitted to me, "Yeah, I remember that. They they did that to me too." Um, they did that, as in, again, let's just clarify there. They, they, you had they mentioned this. Also, yeah, go ahead. Uh, what they were saying is that they were also. You know, I guess tested would be a good word, tested with this device to see if their mind could manipulate the technology. 
when you say the device, uh, I think we're just getting a little confused here. Um, we're talking about like the belt with the box on it. Yes. Yes. So, so they knew of that device. Was there any talk about creatures putting that device on them? Yeah. Yeah. Both of them oh. said that the, the, these white people, the white guys. I don't know. I don't know okay, so this is just the, the, the belt because originally I mentioned that because it's, there was once a movie serial called King of the Rocket Men where the guy puts on this leather jacket that has a special belt and he pushes a button on the belt and he starts flying because he's powered by rocket power. So it's nothing okay. like that, a memory of an old movie serial. Not that I'm aware of, no. I. I don't even know what that movie is you just described. Yeah, I don't know what that movie is either. It's a 1950s movie from <laughs> from Republic. They were, you know, one of the final movie serials. Okay, so you've talked about this with your brother, with your father, and in each case they had similar experiences where they met up with these beings. They tried flying with the belts. Okay, so we know that you had... Well, Gene, I don't think he said they tried flying with the belt. They just had the belt put on them, right, David? Just, let's, let's clarify that. They had the belt put on them, and they both did levitate or fly or whatever oh, you want to call it. But okay. Each one of them did it to a different length of time than I did. My brother seems to have a little more uh, gumption than I do. <laughs> His experience lasted a little longer than mine. Okay, how far did he fly before it stopped? Uh... As, you know, honestly, I don't know. His experience lasted maybe 10 or 15 minutes, where mine seemed to only last five minutes or less. He said he was able to, to you know, zoom around in the air a little bit, and, and he actually landed himself, whereas opposed to me, I got scared and started to fall. Now, when you were in flight, did you hear any noise, like some kind of engine working? No. No. So, David, in, in the re it, it, well, just really quickly, in the readings that you've done about other people's ex experiences, have you found any comparable stories to this to this one that you're telling now of like a belt with a device on it that allowed people to levitate? Is there any other kind of uh, 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 encounter from a third party that would mirror what you say has happened to you and a couple of family members? As far as that device goes, no, I haven't. But I did get a chance to speak with Whitley Strieber for about 10 minutes at one of the conferences. And I mentioned this to him, and he you know, got a quirky look on his face, and he goes, you know, I don't ever remember that, but it sure as hell sounds familiar. So, But he didn't elaborate anymore. Okay. Now, one other thing that occurs to me in just what you said a little bit earlier is you start bringing forth more experiences. Missing time. When, where, how? Um, this was when I was 11, and at that time we lived in Arkansas. And I was in my room, and I had decided to listen to an album. You remember those old vinyl records? And I put the album on, and I, I, before I did that, I was getting that creepy feeling again. I'm being watched. And I put the album on, and the next thing I remember is that the album is over. The arm on the record player is picking up. And I'm about, I'd say maybe a foot away from where I had been standing when I put that on. And I felt really disjointed and, and disoriented. I don't really have any other memory of what may or may not have happened. Just I put the album on and it was over. These I'm typical vinyl record albums, they were maybe 30 or 40 minutes long. Uh -huh. But it was just the record starts 
and suddenly it's over and you've moved a foot. Yeah. Okay. It wasn't a, that night. Maybe you dozed off or something. No, no. I was still standing. Hmm. I was standing up the whole time. And this was an idea seven or eight o'clock in the evening. All right. Question for you, David. Um, how did you meet your wife? No, just to change the subject a little bit, I'm curious. I've been reading up a little bit about her. She has a, she does, like you mentioned earlier on, she does a show. So I, I'm curious, did you guys meet through the field? Yeah, sort of. Uh, a friend of mine who's a fellow musician had introduced me to a, a chat program, a chat service. And uh, so I was just messing around looking through the room list, and I noticed a, a UFO-related room. And it was another radio show, and I listened to it, and I asked into the, you know, typing text in the room, is there is there any other rooms here where people talk about abductions? And my wife was the first one to type in, sure there is. It's it's going to be open after the show is over, so why don't you let me invite you over? And uh, we started talking off and on from there. Actually got to talk online for about two years. Became quite good friends, and then she made the effort to come and see me, and it was pretty much love at first sight. And I'm proud to say that soon it'll be five years that I've been married to my best friend. That's great. That's great. You were never previously married? Uh, yes, I was once to someone who was 10 years younger than me, and that was a nightmare. Uh, that was just wrong decision on my part. Any children? No. All right. What did your first wife, I know it was a nightmare, we don't want to get into it, did she know that you had had unusual experiences? No, I never talked to her about it. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We have David Andrew joining us this week on the Paracast talking about his experiences. Now, this brief missing time, anything else at any time in your life comparable to that? Yeah. Um, this is one of the few oddities that I can remember in my, my teenage years. Um, I was 15, I believe, at the time. At that time, we lived in North Carolina in the Smoky Mountains. Uh, that's where I went to high school, that little tiny town there. And pretty much our backyard was a big mountain. And I decided early one afternoon to go walking up the mountain. And I remember getting to the top of the mountain. It was probably midday, maybe noon, one o'clock. And I'm just looking around. I remember, you know, looking at the sun and everything. And the next thing I remember is that the sun's going down. And I'm still on top of this mountain thinking to myself, crap, I don't want to walk home in the dark. What the hell happened? So I had another chunk of, you know, it was one time in the day. And then suddenly it's another time in the day. And I have no idea what went in between. How long we're we talking about here? The beginning time of the day and the end time? Uh, this this particular occurrence happened, I'd say, in the fall 
And so they did, I was at the top of this mountain, maybe, like I said, at noon, one o'clock, somewhere around then. And the next thing I know, the sun's really low on the horizon, so probably 4.35 o'clock. So I'm guessing here, two and a half, three and a half hours. Okay, nobody around, nobody in the vicinity saying, hey, David, what happened to you? No. Okay, because it looks like, other than the experience you had with your wife, everything has been a solitary encounter, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, if you let me volunteer this, I know this sounds weird compared to all the other stuff you've heard about abductions, but I've never encountered another person during an abduction. I've never encountered one of my family members during an abduction in either way. And the majority of the people that I've talked to, that's common, contrary to what you've probably heard elsewhere. I do know of people who've said, yeah, I've seen a family member, or I've seen somebody that I didn't know, and then years later met this person in real life. So I know it does happen, but in my case, it hasn't. But yet your father and your brother had at least one experience that you've mentioned, that being the flight belt. Mm -hmm. Okay, and they're aware, and we're aware of nothing else with them? How so? What do you mean? Well, no other experiences, basically. That's what you're getting at, Gene, right? No other experiences. I can share a little of what's happened to them with you, but as far as similarities to what's occurred to us, no. I don't know of any other similarities other than seeing the same beings. And at no time did you feel compelled to ask physically, mentally, or otherwise, hey, guys, who are you? Where are you from? Why are you here? Why are you bothering with me? And why are you bothering with my family? Honestly, no. And I know that sounds stupid, but, you know, this is hard to describe. Being in the presence of these beings, these people, whoever they are, it's a very strange and overwhelming sensation. Um, and most likely, you know, most of the times just the underlying fear of what was going on. Uh, you know, I never thought to stop and ask, hey, who are you? Why me? What's going on? I, I, you know, maybe I'm the odd, odd man out in that instance, but, you know, I just never, I never have. Never felt curious. It seems to me that you spend so much of your life being concerned about these events, you'd want to show some curiosity. I mean, how yeah. deeply have you probed conversations with your family members about this, your brother, your father, anybody else in the family? Have anything yeah. strange happened to them? And not just about strange entities, anything. I haven't really spoken to my father or my brother about anything, say, paranormal-related really um as far as asking any other family members you know aunts uncles cousins uh it was a kind of a decision a long time ago when when my father and my brother and i first started really talking to each other openly about this we decided we're just going to keep this in the family the immediate family because the majority of my family are very religious people and we're not quite sure how they would handle this um whether it would be in you know conflicting with their religious beliefs i don't know and you know so we kind of kept it to ourselves but david andrew has made it public that immediately draws attention yeah. to the rest of the family so at what point yeah. did you go public and say you know i gotta talk about this i don't know maybe maybe four or five years ago and i'm guessing here i don't know when the first time i spoke out publicly other than in a chat room or something which is 
you know. And as far as my, I know, none of my other family members outside of my immediate family really have heard anything about this or know anything about it. So I'm kind of taking a bit of a chance whenever I speak out about it. But Now, your wife does a show about the subject, so can we assume maybe she's had some experiences of one sort or another? Um, I would say there's some indications that she has. Whether I could say 100% for certain that she's an abductee, too, I don't know. Um, but she, she claimed she woke up one night and saw something very tall standing in the doorway in our bedroom. Now, I was sound asleep, and she couldn't wake me up. Well, it could have been a dream, too. I mean, let me tell you something, David. My wife, at one point in her life, saw a quote-unquote godlike being standing before her. And she believes it was real. It could have been a dream. And that's what we have to go back to, the whole thing here. Can we see here in anything you say that it wasn't all dreams throughout your life? Now, yes, we have the physical UFO sightings. We have a situation where you and your wife took a movie of something. But of all the other things that have happened to you, it sounds like they could have been dreams. They, they may have been. You know, I just don't know. Honestly, guys, you know, we're dealing with something here that's, in many times, is on the edge of our perception. And, you know, Dave, in speaking with you on the phone before, you know, a couple of days ago, we had talked about some other things. And, you know, I honestly believe that there is much more to us than just the physical body that we're in. There's so much of the universe and what may be real that we can't perceive. And, you know, a lot of this is... is is guesswork, and when people have experiences, it really are, is based on their perception of what's happening to them. And I know that's not really helpful, but it's the truth. <laughs> you know, we try to talk to each other and compare notes, but sometimes you're still left with more questions than answers. Well, it comes back again to the question of deception, that if there's an outside force that is involved in any of this, that outside force doesn't want you to know what's really going on, so they play games with you. And certainly, if you've had missing time, things may have happened, but then we go back to how do you recover the memories? Do you want to find some way to recover the memories? I know that if I had a missing time incident any time in my life, I'd be freaking out in some effort to find out. And I understand the concerns about hypnosis, but how do you bring back those memories? Something went on then, right? Yeah. You know, I've had other people advise me that I should try meditation. I've heard in some people's instances that can jar loose some of these memories. Um, although I have never personally tried that. I've never it might, that's a form of self-hypnosis too, right? Um, now that I've looked into as well. And that may be one option, but then you've got to ask yourself, how honest are you going to be with yourself? You know, this all depends on do I really want to find something to the point that I'm willing to believe whatever pops up in my head, whether it be true or not. You know, you, 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 this is the thing about most of the abductees I've met. In fact, it's not all of the abductees I've met. Is what people don't understand is that they are almost always their own biggest skeptics. You know, if something weird happens, they'll go out of their way to try to explain it as something else first before they, they finally admit, well, I guess I had another experience. Well, that's something that we've run into on the show before, David. Uh, you know, in recent times, we had a uh, guest by the name of Doug who had actually been brought to us uh, really via Bud Hopkins, who seemed to really fit that that mold. He was someone who um, 
other family members had undergone things with him. It had created tremendous problems in his life. Uh, he really didn't get too deeply into the regression hypnosis because it was so painful for him. He just couldn't, he couldn't proceed with it um, because it, it scared the living daylights out of him. Uh, and in, in speaking to Doug on the show, I've spoken to Doug extensively offline just as a, as a, a social thing. I'm firmly convinced of the veracity of his claims because he very much is not seeking publicity. He's indicated this has been a huge problem in his life. Um, and, and like you said, he, he would just as soon believe that it didn't happen because it's not to him. It's not pleasant memories. Um, and, and, and I'm not trying to say that anybody who's ever had an anomalous experience will always describe it as an unpleasant memory because, uh, again, we're back to the deception issue. People remember in many cases, apparently what these beings want them to remember, which is not what actually happened. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, I can understand your concern about hypnosis, but as someone who is trained in, in self-hypnosis, I received extensive training in self-hypnosis techniques. Um, and, and I've been hypnotized more than a couple of times in my life by other people. Uh, I can tell you that, you know, there is the, 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 the kind of the, the, the quintessential idea of the, 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 the person who is doing the hypnotizing, the hypnotist, leading the person who's being hypnotized I've not, in my experiences with hypnosis, I've not found that to be the case. Okay. And I'll, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Let me offer this, and if my dad finds out, he's probably going to kill me. Uh, Not literally, but okay. My dad's a PhD in psychology, practicing doctor of psychology. He's also a licensed hypnotherapist. He's studied at the Erickson Institute here and a few other places. So he's Mm -hmm. preeminently qualified to conduct hypnosis. Okay. And I asked him once and once only, would you do this for me so I can try to find some more memories? And he flat out refused for the same exact reasons I stated earlier. So Does I, he? You know, I, trust, I trust my dad's opinion. I really do. No, I understand. But, but along those same lines then, um, given that he is someone who is likely to use hypnosis in professional work, right? If yeah. he's a certified hypnotherapist, then he's, I mean... <laughs> What are his feelings about hypnosis in general, given that he's someone who's qualified to use it in a therapeutic setting? Well, Does he feel... Know, yeah. Well, I'm just wondering, I'm wondering if he feels that any kind of regression hypnosis is 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 immediately not useful. No. No, that's not the case. And, and, and okay. I'll, I'll say this, too, is I know that hypnosis has been used to alleviate people's physical pain, to help them overcome, you know, like fear of going out in public or post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. And it has been very successful, documented, very successful in those instances. And But you've got to understand, when they use hypnosis in that, in that sense, basically what they're doing is they're telling your mind to fool your body into believing something. Okay? It's right. based on a deception. Now, I know for a fact that he does use hypnosis, but only in one instance in his practice, and that is when he deals with people with post-traumatic, not post-traumatic, of uh, multiple personality disorder. And he only uses it as a control effect in case one of the personalities may come out in this person that's a violent, angry personality. He has a keyword 
you know, set in there where he can say this word and they'll calm down. Whereas, so this way, they're not a danger to him or themselves. Mm-hmm. Other than that, he never used hypnosis for any reason. And he would not at all accept the possibility of you undergoing this. Does he have, being that he's a professional, any other ideas to help you bring out these memories or strictly meditation and self-hypnosis? Well, both of those, both of those things he's mentioned to me because he does know self-hypnosis and uh, he's mentioned meditation to me as well. So is my brother. You know, guys, you, you may disagree here, but really, I tell people this when they talk to me about their experiences, and, and it's a hard truth that they may not want to realize or uh, our face, and that is the bottom line is if we want answers about this, we can talk to each other and compare notes, or we can ask each you because really they're the only ones who have answers as to why they're doing this, and in most cases, they're not talking. We're not, we don't even know if they're ET, exactly. That's, exactly. They could be. Right. That, that this, extra, who knows what? Uh, we don't, and and this is something that it seems like lately on the show we're making this point a lot. In that, um, you know, people will will bring up the term extraterrestrial ET, and and I think Gene and I are working very hard to try to make people understand that that is based on a set of assumptions that may or may not be accurate. Uh, we we yeah. simply don't know. And and certainly when it comes to this topic, the amount that we do know is so minuscule in comparison to what we don't know. Um, it almost uh, it's almost frustrating beyond belief, because uh, it, you know sometimes it sounds like we're 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 talking in circles. And the thing is, with that said, I I think it's fair to say that. Um, and, and again, like we discovered, uh, we found out about you, David, was because of your writings. Uh, about the Stan Romanek case, where you know this is one situation where I feel totally comfortable saying that I don't believe a word he, that comes out of his mouth, um, you know, because of the number of things that he's been involved with that are highly questionable. And like you brought up that um, in that piece of writing that you did about um, that recent radio show, where this bogus voice came on and did and did something in the middle of an interview, and it was just. One of those things where any reasonable person listens to that and goes, "Oh well, that's it." You know, it, it, you know, you got a situation where a guy's making up something like that once, combined you with know, all the rest of it, it's just he's not credible. You know, in his case, it's it's not just the the the, the red flag you get from that weird computer voice. It's you know the stuff that James Carrion's been looking into, and there's there's stuff that the I fallow read thing, that article. Yeah. There's just a whole bunch of stuff, you know, and there's all these red flags, and they're like, wait a minute. Anybody with a little common sense is going to look at this and go say, you know, say, hey, something's not right here. Yeah. But there's a lot of people who just overlook all that because they want to be on Stan's side and, and be a part of throwing out the latest, greatest flavor of the month, as I put it in my article, of, you know. And there's so much stuff about his case and a few others, you know, Jim Sparks for one that just make you leave, you know, scratch your head and go, wait a minute. And, you know, so it's not just what I pointed out. There's a lot of other stuff. And I want to ask you guys, have you read um, an article that came out, uh, I think, last year in August sometime from uh, an online magazine called The Pitch from Kansas City, Missouri? Oh, the, this is the fallow thing, right? Uh, yeah, that's the guy who originally found the fallow follow right. stuff. Right. And did you did you hear any of the stuff that he said uh, Romanek was saying at that conference? I don't remember. Why don't you remind us? <laughs> okay, okay, let me throw out a few things here for you. Um, Romanek 
stated during his presentation at that conference, uh, and he says, uh, one night in 2003, he woke up in mysterious flannel ladies' wear, or oh. nightgown, I guess. All right, wait a minute, and wait a said, minute. This is getting a little bit raunchy. Go ahead. Uh, okay, it says, but for the first time at the, this conference, he announced that he suspects this nightgown originally belonged to Betty Hill. And then somebody asked him, well, why didn't you have it tested for the Hill's DNA? He says, well, it's too expensive. But my first oh, thought was, well, come. Kathleen Martin was at the conference. Why didn't you ask her? Oh, come you on. Know? He's just so full of it. I mean, what's it cost for DNA? Just a few hundred dollars, right? For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. By the way, we have David Andrew, a few more minutes with him to talk about his views and about different things. But we bring back the question of this alleged nightgown that allegedly belonged to Betty Hill was rather a short, That's somewhat overweight lady. How tall is Stan Romanek? I don't know. It's a little over three feet. Meanwhile, I mean, this is just silly. So he went. So the minute a guy is at a conference, says something like that, I think we're done, right? I, I mean, what more do you need? In his well, case, yeah, I, go ahead. Go ahead. Please. I just want to throw out this one last thing here on that, as far as something he said at the conference. Somebody asked him, by the way, Stan, what kind of work do you do? And Stan says, this, this is what I do. Right. You know, re referring to speaking at conferences and selling books and ET yeah. videos. And, 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 and wearing Betty Hill's nightgown. And wearing Betty Hill's nightgown. Oh, man. Yeah, <laughs> that answers everything. Well, and, and, and like we said, I mean, we had him on the show, and it wasn't hard to disassemble his stuff. It, it took, what, three minutes, and we were done with him. Uh, you know, so with, with someone like him, it's sad because he's the guy that then gets exposure because he's got this goofy footage. And, and to me, that really suggests that um, the media, the mainstream media, as it were, the media that we know at this point is pretty much useless for anything regarding reality or understanding the world. It's just useless. Um, so that, yeah, to say the least, right? Uh, they pick up on people like that. Um, when you have Peckman showing up on the David Letterman show and the exocranial morons claiming that, you know, this is somehow a win for the cause of exopolitics, I had to remind one of the leading uh, dim bulbs of that movement, you know, Letterman's show is a comedy show. You realize that, right? He went and got exposure on a comedy show. 
and you guys think this is good, you're delusional. You know, because every kind of publicity is not good publicity. And if no one believes that, there's a former governor of New York by the name of Elliot Spitzer. Go ask Mr. Spitzer about the idea of all publicity being good publicity. It just isn't that way. Um, Dennis Kucinich, when he got asked if he'd seen a UFO. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that, you know, and, now, right? uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, that an inauspicious moment to be sure. Uh, well, and it just plays into the way that the media treats the topic, but we keep coming back to why does the media treat the topic this way? And, you know, certainly people can find conspiracy theories regarding that. I kind of waver on that point. I think they basically treat the subject like a joke because for the mass audience, this subject is nothing more than entertainment. We've said that on the show before, even most of the other shows like, like, internet radio or even terrestrial radio shows that cover this topic do it from the point of view of entertainment they're not looking for actual answers they're basically promoting stories and this is why you have people like Romanek and Peckman and Sparks out there with a huge amount of visibility because they essentially they give people answers they tell people what people want to hear what the last thing that people want to hear is there are no answers because that's that's not what the audience wants. The audience is like, please give me a pre-digested answer. I don't even care if it's the truth. Make it sound good. That's all I care about. That's why we have so much trouble on this show, by the way, because we keep telling our listeners, and we have a weekly newsletter, by the way, plug, plug, where I say the same thing. You know what, folks? These are the questions we have to ask, for which there are no answers, and maybe at the end of the day, we shouldn't know those answers. Speaking we want to know. Yeah, so do I. Like well, you know, that raises a point, which I'm thinking of the more and more. I understand the various complexities involved in submitting yourself to examination by your own father. Okay. And certainly you should take whatever he says, whatever advice he gives you seriously as your father. Okay. But would you consider maybe talking to another therapist about this? Somebody who is objective, somebody who doesn't have the family connection, they could look at your situation totally fair, totally open, and decide what might be the best moves for you to make to unearth memories to find out what happened to you. Well, well, as far as hypnosis goes, I don't know. Um, but uh, there is one thing that I, I, I am contemplating uh, looking into, and that is I want to have a um, psychological profile done. I don't, I don't know what the... You know the standard testing to find out okay what's this guy is he nuts or not you know or whatever i'd like to have that done by somebody outside my family just to see what, what is it going to come up with what is it going to say am i fantasy prone like most people claim abductees are or, you know would it be worth your while talking to someone who investigates ufo abductions not for hypnosis but just to get some advice of where to go uh actually i have quite a few people I, uh you know, other people in, uh, that are abductees themselves. And I'm talking about the people who investigate, not the experiencers. Like but, a Bud Hopkins, yeah. a David Jacobs, someone like that. I have talked to a few people like that, yeah. And what did they tell you to do? Uh, undergo hypnosis. At least researchers do. Not, not, not mental health professionals. Other researchers. That's their first, that's their first answer, usually. Well, let's dig out these answers. Let's go hypnotize you. What well, comes back to this, do you really want to know the answers? You've made this public. You didn't have to. 
you started a book. Maybe you haven't finished it yet. Maybe you'll finish it someday. You didn't have to do that. You no. didn't have to do any of it. Why did you feel it necessary to reveal what you've revealed so far? Um, you know, honestly, I found out from, from, like I told you how I met my wife, and in talking with some of the people in the chat room there, and then later I got to meet some of these people in person, and I found that a few things, you know, just talking with someone else who can identify like where you're coming from, it, it, it at times does help break some other things loose in your memories. Um, I found that to be extremely helpful. Only problem is you got to make sure you're not picking up part of their story and adding it to yours. Uh, but there again, I'll reiterate that almost every single contactee I've, or abductee I've ever met, they're their own biggest skeptic. They go out of their way not to let that happen. Well, David, would you differentiate for us in your words uh, what you feel is the difference between an abductee and a contactee? Uh, see, I, I, both of those terms, I, I think, are a little bit of a misnomer. I don't really think either one of them fits 100% to whatever people are experiencing. Because um, contactee sounds so much like you're inviting somebody over for tea and crumpets or something, you know. Uh, I would say a contactee is somebody who's experienced lifelong encounters. Um, an abductee, and a lot of people may disagree with me on this, but I think all contactees are also an abductee at some point or other because I'm sure there's been times where they showed up, as, you know, speaking of these beings, and you didn't really want to go with them, but they kind of forced the issue. So that turns you into an abductee right then. But, you know, as, as I said in some of my experiences, they showed up, I was scared, they put my mind at ease, and I went with them willingly. What do you I think ultimately... What do you think ultimately they wanted with you? Honestly, you know, this thing with the flying device and this other event where they had me looking through my eyes, if that makes sense, uh, and a few of the other things that have occurred, I think they're studying me. And I think they're studying all the other abductees. Now, whether they're trying to gauge us as far as mental development or, or you know, biological development, I don't know. Um, but I do think that we're kind of an ongoing study for them. That's just kind of the impression I get. But why does it involve so many people? I mean, you'd think if you're an advanced species and you want to investigate those primitive earthlings, you get maybe a few dozen samples of each racial, sexual category, different age groups, and that would be it. Why the ongoing research involving thousands and thousands of people? Yeah, you know, I can speculate on that just as, just as much as anybody else can. And mm -hmm. I can tell you what I think, but, you know, invariably it's still guesswork. Sure. Um, you know, this, this stuff, with, and most of the people that I've talked to that have seen the short grays, it seems as though to me, from what I found out, that that's where most of the the genetic, the, the physical poking and prodding comes from is, is people who are being contacted or you know having encounters with the grays. I get a strange sensation that the grays are trying to back engineer something that we have. Uh, you know, people almost always tell you, I don't see any genitalia on the grays. Um, you get a sense of a male or female presence, but there's no differentiation physically. And a lot of times the grays have acted as though they don't understand why is the abductee screaming at the top of their lungs right now. They just, like, they just don't get it. Um, when you 
do t- hear stories about people seeing, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, a hybridized child, you know, a, a lot of times that person will be encouraged to hug this child, to, to give this child affection, as if the greys just don't get it. They're, they're studying, like, what is this? This is something we don't understand. And I have a feeling there may be some truth to, to people's theories that the greys have purposely bred some of these things out of themselves like anger and hate and fear and that sort of thing because you know see what kind of problems it's caused on our planet but then it got to a point where they realized well we breed some of these things out of us and we also lose our imagination there's no drive to explore to discover to find out why and maybe they're just become a sterile race i don't know uh like i said it's all speculation on my part but I'm finding a few things that may indicate that that's the truth. I don't know. Where does David Andrews' mission of self-discovery take him now? Excuse me? (laughs) I'm sorry, I didn't catch all that. Well, trying to assess where you want to go from here to find out more about what happened to you or about what's going on in general. Where's your journey taking you? Honestly, I don't really know. Uh, And I'm going to admit this to you guys. Me writing that article about Romanek, that was kind of, I just got set up and at the urging of several other abductee friends, because sometimes I'm, I'm their champion, I guess you'd say. Sometimes they get me to speak out. It's kind of like, yeah, let's get Mikey to do it. He'll eat anything, you know. <laughs> and and I, I swore to myself and my wife will, reminded me of this the other day. The last time I did an interview was, I don't know, maybe five or six months ago. And I had a friend of mine who's had a ducky interview me, and I ranted and raved about hypnosis and what I thought. And I swore to myself, that's it. I'm not going to talk about this no more because there's just too much crap out there, and I'm getting tired of it. And what do I know that honestly, feeling, the, <laughs> Honestly, the future, you know, I, I'm kind of breaking my own rule by talking to you guys right now, but I have listened to some of your work before, and I like the way you approach this. Uh, you know, you don't take crap from anybody. And you've questioned me a few times. How how can you believe that what I'm saying is true? It could be a dream. I, I don't know. You know, as far as the future, you know, like I said before, my answers, I guess, are going to come from them. And they don't reveal a whole lot. Yeah. Are you ever going to finish this book? I don't know. I don't know. I honestly don't know. I'd like to just as a personal accomplishment, but I really don't know. I, I think David. Sure that anybody really wants truth. You know, this is my version of the truth. Ah, uh, well. You know, I don't know. I mean, am I wrong? <laughs> Listen to no, all the Dan Romanex and the Jim Sparks is out there. Do people yeah. really want truth, or do they want the next big entertainment thing? That's a, that's the question we ask ourselves all the time, David. We understand how you feel along those lines. It seems like if you've got a good spiel, doesn't matter whether it's true or not. People would rather. People would rather hear a good spiel than, than reality, sadly. Um, and that's what we keep running into that as well. So we, we, we feel your pain. <laughs> if any of our listeners want to check out what you've posted online or get in touch with you, where do they go? Um, I guess you can contact me through Frank Warren. I don't really like to get out of my email, if you don't mind, because, you know, I don't need any more hate mail. What about um, the website? Um, I don't really have an address posted on either one. You could probably put a message on my... Actually, I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll create an email address, and I'll post it to my wife's website. How about that? Works for us. Okay. That Dave, sounds good. So look Go on the main page somewhere. It'll be on there. David Andrew. I, I, 
I do have a Facebook account. Um, if somebody wants to contact me through that, just look for David W. Andrew. Okay, that's where we go. David Andrew, thanks for joining us this week on the Paracast. Thanks, David. Thank you, guys. Thank you. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.